Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. One of the core concepts in both the Dharma as well as contemporary psychology, I'm going to refer to it as self-states. And what self-states are is going to become pretty apparent. And then once we introduce the concept and why it's important, then I'm going to be leading a meditation where we'll be exploring different parts of our personality, or psyche, I should say, or psyche, our self-structures. And then uh, we'll learn how to consciously connect with parts that are less available to us. So here we go. Um, one of the most profound teachings of the Buddha is known as Anatta. The Buddha, some 2,500 years ago, at least the, from what we can tell by the written records that have been passed down, taught that there is no such thing as a single core self that remains unchanged, that human beings do not have an inflexible, static core identity or self that defines them. And um, from any psychological perspective in the last uh, 120 years, certainly since the work of William James, this is not a uh, extreme uh, 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 concept or provocation. It's actually just from today's uh, perspective, it's pretty <coughs> straightforward. But at the time, it was, a ra- it was a significantly revolutionary statement in the sense that all of the spiritual paths of the Buddhist time basically uh, argued that there was this core self or soul that was the recipient of karma, etc., and was basically de- defined who we were, but from the Buddhist perspective, the self was subject to constant change, states of flow, and that the, uh, rather than having any single entity, the Buddha taught that we have different inclinations, or what he called anusayas, which are uh, types of thinking and behavior that are organized our basic survival needs, such as our desire to master uh, a skill, to uh, sexuality, to executive control where we uh, have intellectual facility and so forth, Um, aggression. And so that there's these different human drives or uh, capabilities and that they have different inclinations or self-states that uh, enact. So today, there are a whole wide host of psychological modalities, therapeutic modalities that directly address uh, in the client uh, therapeutic encounter focus on identifying the various subparts, subpersonalities, or self-states, I'm going to refer to them as, 
of an individual learning what, how certain self-states do not co cooperate very well with other self-states and how to get access to repressed self-states or parts of ourselves. And um, so these different modalities are known as attachment theory, trauma theory, theory uh, internal family systems therapies, sensory motor psychotherapy, uh, and on and on depth therapies. So it's, it's pretty much, in fact, some form of parts work is uh, prevalent or at least present in pretty much any uh, therapeutic modality that you will uh, find uh, today. So, um, from the most basic understanding, uh, different self-states could be seen as for the fact that right now I have a certain set of feelings in my body, and I also have a narrator in my mind that's churning different thoughts, and finally I also have uh, social behaviors, the way I act when I'm talking to a group of people. And those three different uh, qualities or functions of self could be an entirely working well together in alignment. But if I had, for example, stage fright or something like that, my body would have a set of physiological responses that would be completely, utterly in conflict with my thoughts, which would be, I just want to have a nice presentation, but my, my stomach would be tight or I would be sweating. And, there, and then on top of it, I'd have a social persona, which would be trying to look as if nothing's happening. So all three of those different self-states would be in conflict or different articulations of self. Um, uh, and again, uh, there are different self-states for things like resource allocation, like looking after our resources to survive, our sex drives, the way we affiliate with both um, a tribe as well as the way we bond with a significant attachment figure like a romantic partner, the way we play, the way we give outlet to basic drives of aggression or fear and so forth. So we all have a lot of different self-states and hopefully most of the time they are, they share enough memories and enough similarities that as we move from one self-state to another, it, the narrative feature in the brain can sort of paper over it, the fact that we've moved from one state to another and make it seem kind of natural and not jarring. But at times it can be very apparent when they're present. So before I jump into some of my own self-states, um, the earliest formation of self-states we now know starts in the attachment years, uh, roughly around age one or 12 months to 24 months. And this is around the time that a infant, that an infant bonds with one specific caregiver primarily, and that relationship determines the different uh, <clears throat> behaviors, inclinations, nervous system states of the infant. So for example, 
When a child feels securely monitored by its caregiver, an infant knows that it's being observed and it matters in the mind of a caregiver, that infant goes into what's called exploratory behaviors where the child doesn't monitor the mother anymore. It confidently goes out, plays, investigates an environment, interacts with other babies or other individuals. It will be creative and playful and uh, its nervous system will be homeostatic, which means it'll move effortlessly between states of vigilance and relax and ease. So it's, um, it's a very positive state. Now suppose, for example, there's a period of time where the primary caregiver, due to financial stresses or other stressors, uh, becomes unreliably attentive to the child. During that, those stages, which will happen uh, inevitably in anyone's childhood, when the infant is now uncertain that it matters in the mind of the caregiver, the child no longer explores, no longer investigates or is curious about its surroundings, no longer interacts with other children. The child now will orient itself entirely towards being preoccupied with the primary caregiver, the mother or father, because the child is uncertain whether that secure base that looks after it and regulates its emotions is available. And the child now, their nervous system is entirely in sympathetic nervous system and their core inclinations will be to withdraw and retreat from the world. If the child goes through a period where a caregiver doesn't seem to be hardly attuned, empathetically aware, where a caregiver seems at times just incapable of soothing or understanding the child's state, then that child will become essentially returned to exploratory behaviors, but will not interact with others. It will look for just resources like uh, toys and things to auto-regulate its emotions it will develop a pseudo-independent orientation where the infant will be living under the illusion that it can take care completely of its own needs and that it doesn't require others to regulate its emotions. And finally, if there's ever a period of time, hopefully not, where the uh, infant for any prolonged period is scared of its caregiver, then the inevitable result is dissociation, which is a process where one loses awareness of one's body, no longer feels embodied, as well as loses a, uh, the, the picture or the presentation of reality is now significantly distorted. Um, that's known as depersonalization and derealization. Anyway, it's the core events of when we feel frightened of the very person that we are essentially programmed by evolution to attach to. And if that state continues, the child will essentially over time jump erratically from hypervigilance to hypovigilance, will hide rather than engage with the world, will um, be drawn though towards unsafe individuals while becoming indifferent to safe individuals. So those are the basic self-states that we hopefully didn't have too much of the latter, 
But no matter how uh, attuned your parent, your parents were, you would have had the first three in various degrees. You would have had times where you felt secure and were able to explore. You would have other times where you were less uh, certain of your being monitored, important to your caregivers, and you would have stopped and reoriented yourself towards one individual and monitored them. And then a third state where you became very, very uh, essentially individuated prematurely and felt overly confident in one's autonomy rather than relying on other people for help. Now, uh, those self-states will last into our adult life. And they will take on adult uh, clothing, uh, behaviors, perceptions, but the underlying characteristics are still there. Some of us and certain, with certain friends in certain situations are very secure, but put us in work, we might become very anxious and preoccupied with our, uh, uh, our supervisor who might be sometimes positive and sometimes dismissing. At other times, we might be uh, dismissive, uh, avoidance, distance-seeking, where we need just time entirely to ourselves, do not want to connect, want to be left alone to develop mastery over certain skills or whatever. So uh, in any adult life, these tendencies are going to last. And um, so to give you, but then they can split into a wide variety of different, even contrasting self-states. So I was reflecting on myself, because uh, uh, that seemed the most honest way to give this talk. And um, so on the one hand, my life has been for now the last 16 years, has been uh, in counseling and teaching the Dharma. So I'm somebody who a lot of my waking hours is uh, very fluent in both uh, contemporary neuropsychology and uh, the co core concepts of contemporary therapeutic modalities, but at the same time, and as well, uh, the early ideas of the Dharma. But if you stumbled upon me at the gym, where I am in a self-state where my body is primed for motor skills, and I'm listening on my headphones to a post-punk band like No Age or whatever, or uh, some other band, and I'm, you know, just in that gym state, then, as somebody recently did, I was working out at my cheapest shit gym, and then this person who came to a couple of the talks came up and just started asking me a question about Buddhism, and I, you would never know that I had any familiarity with it. Like, <laughs> what? You know, <laughs> literally, he just asked me for, can you just, you said it this talk, blah, blah, blah. Can you give me a book to read about? Now, if you ask me that question here, uh, that will automatically turn on the self-state where I'll be able to reference all these different titles. But ask me at the gym, I'd be hard-pressed to name any Buddhist book, but sometimes, you know, or book on contemporary clinical psychology. Um, most of the time, I am the least aggressive 
uh, guy you could possibly meet. I don't have any of that. Uh, I just don't really have that kind of, you know, kind of aggressive masculinity in me. I grew up in a family that that was run by my mom, and it was a very safe place. And uh, aggression just wasn't really instilled in me, but. If you catch me on a Saturday morning when I'm watching my favorite English soccer team play and they score, then I sometimes leap up in the air and howl and, you know, the, you know, that kind of stuff. It can seem very incompatible. When I walk around New York, unlike so many people today, I am constitutionally incapable of listening to music on my headphones. Why? Well, I grew up in New York in... You know, I was like a teen in the late 1970s when New York was fucking dangerous. And if you wore something in your headphones, it was like putting a sign on your, your head saying, please mug me and then kill me. <laughs> so I am not capable of walking around on the street talking into like a phone, you know, or listening to music. I am in a sort of light, hypervigilant state. But on the other hand, right now, I'm actually very relaxed. Many people would be the exact opposite. They would find, I guess, doing this kind of not exactly relaxing, but they can walk around on the street listening to music, being completely unaware of their environment. <laughs> uh, uh, gatherings, oh yeah, gatherings where per, small talk is required. Um, I cannot function in. I literally, uh, the only thing I'm capable of saying at most weddings is just my, 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 my opening gambit in every conversation is, boy, I really hate being at weddings. And I hope that somebody will be empathetic enough to meet me on that <laughs> because I'm utterly incapable of talking about, you know, how do you know the groom or the bride? And you know, how was your drive here? Literally, nothing. It, it's it's nothing. It's a. Uh. Um, but when I'm with my friends in, I've been sober for 25 years. My friends in sobriety or my Buddhist friends, then I'm completely relaxed in social gatherings because there's no expectation of being performative or being socially refined. Um, in, uh, in watching entertainment, I have this long lineage of sort of like snobbish uh, kind of liking watching European art house films and, and stuff like that. And yet at the same time, I can also uh, just be completely uh, enjoy really mind-numbingly stupid dancing that I like to do in public places just to humiliate whoever I'm with. Uh, so uh, that's just a summary of how we can have incompatible self-states that um, and that's there's nothing wrong about that. There's nothing wrong about having different qualities. The the problem, as we'll see, is when one self-state becomes ashamed of or uh, alienated from 
other very natural self-states and tries to uh, somehow block, repress, cut off, or deny the existence of other self-states. Um, all these self-states are neural firing patterns that glue together perspectives, capabilities, states of the nervous system, which allows the brain to function efficiently. You could not have one self-state that would work in all the different contexts of your life. If you try to have a self-state that would function while you're in an intimate romantic setting, while at the same time having a self-state that would function at a job where you have to keep be detail-oriented and keep track of tasks, literally your brain would be overwhelmed. There's the requirements, the <coughs> behaviors, the states of consciousness are utterly incompatible. And that, by the way, is a very good reason why if you're ever in a new relationship, don't visit your new partner at their job <laughs> or even go too quickly to see them in their family. Because what will happen is you'll see this person in an entirely different self-state. And the person who is intimate, attuned, uh, doting on you, uh, emotionally uh, uh, open to intimacy, will suddenly be distant, cold, focused on other things, will, will show absolutely no signs of tenderness. And of course, people naively conclude, well, I guess he was or she was lying, you know, because when we're together, it's very, it's very generous and very easygoing and we're, do, we're totally connected. But I went to visit him or her at their, at their office or at their art studio or, you know, and holy shit, they were entirely different to me. That doesn't mean that someone is inauthentic. It simply means that you have encountered a different self-state. And it takes many, many years to be comfortable with the varieties of an individual's complex, different self-presentations. And some self-states of a partner you'll never be that comfortable with, even though it can be a largely a secure attachment. Um, so healthy development, in other words, is not an attempt to ever impose a single self-state uh, that can function in all situations. The key is actually to adapt to multiplicity, to be comfortable with the fact that we have different uh, qualities of perception, <laughs> capabilities that are incongruous with each other. And from one self-state perspective, another self-state might at times be embarrassing or might feel needy or might feel um, uh, inappropriate. And um, the problem then comes when a, the more dominant self-state, the stickier one, tries to impose its perspective and its, um, essentially its morality at, onto the other one. So an example, uh, I was many years ago talking with a fellow uh, Buddhist therapist who, and we were just 
gabbing about different uh, uh, experiences. And my friend told me this very fascinating uh, uh, experience with a client. His client, uh, when uh, as a child, grew up in a very, very homophobic environment. And thus, his sexuality was very shamed. And so, by the time he was an adult, he had this very sort of strong self-judgment. And uh, to what happened was that the sexuality self-state was so compartmentalized that this person would wait until the weekend, and then he would go out, do drugs, and have as much sex unprotected with as many different partners as he possibly could. And then by Sunday morning, he would be thoroughly ashamed of himself and would be um, just in the state of, of despair and feeling like he mm -hmm. was somehow... Uh, um, uh, it linked up with this core shame. When a child grows up and core attributes are rejected by a caregiver, the child begins to believe there's something unlovable about me. And that feeling there's something unlovable about me can be linked with one of their self-states. Very often it's either binge eating, you know, seeking as much pleasure as one can, or sexuality. So in this person totally fused their self state of uh, needing to pursue sensual pleasure and gratification, which was thoroughly compartmentalized into this very limited period of time and was done in a kind of a fugue state where they were literally uh, acting out uh, their needs. But it, to do that, they had to become completely intoxicated. So my friend, uh, who was working with this individual tried all these different strategies to try to not in any way to uh, to try to change the person's because actually the my friend was also gay he was trying to give the person ways to integrate his sexuality into his life so that it wasn't done in this sort of compartmentalized very shameful hidden intoxicated way so um, they tried different strategies and whatever they tried didn't work until finally uh, the therapist came up with this wonderful, wonderful uh, idea. He just said to the person, listen, this week, don't try anything. Just go out, enjoy yourself, have as much sex as you possibly can. Just don't worry about it. And in that moment, everything shifted because that acceptance of that of the person's sexual drives and that blanket love and permission then completely obviated the need to go at it from this binge driven state. And when the person came in the following week, everything had changed. They had just met with one person and they had actually connected in a much more realistic, you know, a much more um, uh, attuned way. And suddenly the need to become completely intoxicated was alleviated because what the therapist did was accepted the self-state in the statement and gave the, the client the one thing that they never had from his parents, which was just, it's okay.
It's okay, you have desires, it's all right. Very often, if there's any kind of uh, conflict in self-states, um, what will happen is anxiety will mount because the repressed self-state, when, when it returns with all of its needs and all of its impulses, will activate anxiety. That's the work of Carl Rogers. So, um, uh, in um, Carl Rogers' work, he said we very often have felt needs, some of which can be poorly integrated, and then we have a desire to appear as in control, happy, confident, lovable, um, intellectual, whatever, to the people around us. And when some self-state or some inclination is in conflict with that uh, social persona, the end result is anxiety. And it was Rogers' belief that that is the primary cause of anxiety in adult life, which is the expectation that we'll be rejected by others because of a very natural inclination or need that we are struggling with. So a lot of states can be in conflict. Socially performative states, like the person who's very workaholic or very diligent at work, where they're constantly putting out fires, solving problems, can sometimes need to relax and unwind and just completely not solve anything in their life, not even uh, be particularly attentive to the people around them. They just need to unwind. Our drive to monitor our resources, i.e. be frugal, pay attention to a budget, how much money we have, can be completely at odds with our needs to play, reward ourselves, indulge ourselves in sensual pleasures. Our desire to connect with a single partner can come at the expense of our need to maintain social affiliations with our friends and our, you know, our activities outside of the relationship. So throughout our life, there will be periods of time where we have uh, parts of ourselves that are in conflict. Very often, the parts that are most in conflict, according mm -hmm. to internal family systems, are the parts that one, again, like Paul Rogers said, are what they call managers, the parts of ourselves that allow us to look good to other people, keep a job, uh, and move through the world somewhat effortlessly and confidently, such as our ability to um, be a hard worker, the perfectionist, the people pleaser, the parts of ourselves that wants to master and you know, own a project from beginning to end. But then there are these other parts of ourselves which are come out when we're not around others, and they're known in IFS as firefighters, or essentially these are parts that don't look good to, you know, a large group of our friends or especially work situations. That could be the person who suddenly just needs to uh, binge on some sensual pleasure, someone who needs to just become 
check out and become, you know, a couch sloth and just watch mind-numbing TV. Someone who's addicted to to dopamine uh, activating substances like food or drugs or or people who essentially uh, become, when they're alone, suddenly start worrying about every relationship in their life. And then lastly, there's a final part they call exiled parts, which hold all of the wounds and emotional rejections and attachment wounds from our past. And these exiled parts can be completely buried underneath these managers and firefighters. The parts that look good that we enact for most of the day, and then the addictive parts that we rely on to self-soothe when we're alone. So, in our meditation, what we are going to do is we're going to use some of these insights, and we're going to do a practice that one might do in either Buddhist therapy or IFS therapy, where we're going to first connect with one part of ourselves, one self-state, that we rely on and we enact or we embody when we're around lots of people and we're very confident that this self-state makes us look good to the world. And, but we're going to ask it very politely to step aside and we're going to ask them to connect with one of our firefighters or our, the addictive parts of ourself that come out when we're alone and um, essentially are there as a last-ditch effort to repress our feelings of loneliness or pain. And then we're going to ask those firefighters to step aside, and we're going to try to connect with some of the exile part, one exile part that holds some of the wounds. And in this perspective, the Buddhist perspective and the IFS perspective, when you can connect with one of those buried wounds, suddenly the stickiness of the other parts, the, the need to always be in control is alleviated and there's a greater fluidity and a, a greater degree of self-acceptance if we can connect with all of the different parts of ourselves. So I don't know if any of that was followable, but that's the size of it. I hope something was interesting and now we're going to do a practice where we connect with different parts of ourselves. <clears throat> so relax. <laughs> I like barking the word relax. Because <laughs> there's nothing there's nothing that's more relaxing than to have somebody scream, just relax. <laughs> and stretch anything you need to do to just you know settle in twist you know just a nice full you know uh, expression of arms and legs and whatever you need to feel reconnected <clears throat> with your body and in a good place where you can begin to settle in and then 
closing the eyes if they're not already closed or looking at the ground. The idea is to disconnect from the visual field. When you do that, the body, which very often awareness of the body is the most hidden or removed from awareness, what we want to do is bring our awareness to the body. That's very often where self-states and emotional needs are expressed. But it's so easy for us by the time we're adults to overlay so much on top of our experience that we don't connect with our bodies. So once you remove the visual field, then the next thing to do is relax the body so that it's pleasant to stay with it, or at least easier. So make a nice, complete in-breath through the nose and squinch the muscles in your face, clench the jaw, furrow the brow, etc. And then as you breathe that slowly through the mouth, just release, soften, let go of any tightness, Release any clenching of the jaw. Another full in-breath, lifting the shoulders, if you like, up, like in a really exaggerated way, and then rotate your shoulders back, and as you breathe out through the mouth, dropping the shoulders, opening up the chest, engaging the vagal brakes, slowing down your heart rate, creating a really open space in the heart center, And then for our third in-breath, bloating out the belly as you breathe in to receive, as it were, the energy of the in-breath into the abdomen. So it feels like, almost like the air is filling up your belly. And then as you breathe out, soften the belly. So your belly becomes really... The out-breath is associated with ease and letting go. When we breathe into the belly, which means essentially just pay attention to the sensations of the breath in the abdominal area, the more you can incline the physiological expression of inhalation and exhalation to be in the abdomen, then you're sending messages up to the midbrain via various circuits 
nerves and blood circulation and you're basically informing your amygdala that you're safe. And then in turn, your nervous system will shift, downshift from any latent chronic stress and hopefully begin to settle into a more easeful expression. And lastly, to fully connect with our embodied self-states and to find comfort and ease, we need to put aside some of the thoughts that get overlaid or cloud our awareness of our bodies, of our feelings. And so what we do is we make a note, an intention, <clears throat> not to become frustrated or disappointed when thoughts appear, but just to note them and just allow them to be in the background, but keep bringing our attention back again and again and again to physical sensations or that are actually happening right here and right now. So just keep bringing the awareness back. It doesn't mean that times won't happen where a very important sounding thought will grab hold of your attention and probably lead you off into a virtual reality in your mind. When that happens, there's nothing to be frustrated about, nothing to feel is wrong. It's just another opportunity to ingrain a way back to your embodied experience. So, just every time you find yourself lost in thought, just find, bring your awareness down, check with your chest, does it still feel open? Is the belly breathing? Inclining the out-breath to be very long, much longer than the in-breath. If it's difficult to stay with your body, start counting your breath. One on the in-breath, two on the next out, three in the next in-breath, four on the next out, and when you reach five, Start counting back down. So four on the out, three on the in, two on the out. You're counting from one to five and back down with odd numbers on the in-breath. If it's still difficult to stay, 
with your embodied sensation, just drop in with each exhalation a very simple phrase. May I be happy and peaceful. May all beings be happy and peaceful. Or very simple, I love you, keep going.
So at this point, I'd like you to bring to mind some prominent quality some capability or skill or attribute more appropriately attribute that you rely on frequently to survive in the world it could be the very diligent detail oriented a person who takes excessive time to make sure everybody is comfortable. The person is very good at resolving conflict amongst others. Very often a long-term result of a child and us who needed to be the peacekeeper in our family system. Perhaps a prominent tendency to someone who never asks for help, who just takes on projects and handles it entirely. Somebody who's willing to put up with even the most difficult narcissistic individuals. Just find some attribute that makes you is a significant part of your day-to-day life that on the one hand certainly makes you look good to others but at the same time can leave you feeling not enough room to breathe the workaholic or perfectionist, a person who's always organized and in control. Just find that quality, visualize a situation, common situation where you would be in this state, and then If you can really visualize the state and feel what it's like to be, again, relying on this manager, this part that is so dominant in our life, just ask, what am I afraid would happen if I didn't have this quality? What am I afraid would happen? Suddenly I would not be likable, that I wouldn't be good enough to maintain friends or work. What is the belief that's justifying this part? What am I afraid would happen if I wasn't so constantly 
detail-oriented, perfectionist, pleasing, forgiving, and whatever if any belief you connect with that justifies this part, just say to it, okay, thank you. For a little while, I'm gonna take care of that need. And you just, for a little while, step aside. I'd like to connect with another part of myself. And now I'd like you to visualize a time when you're engaged in a compulsive activity, something that you don't feel proud of. Some of us, it's binging on social media, Netflix, shopping, food, alcohol, sleeping. Just visualize a time when you're alone and just exhausted from all of the the need to appear useful to the world. And these are behaviors we don't generally feel proud of, but just visualize one Just acknowledge it without any judgment. And ask it, what are you afraid I'd feel if I put aside for a little while this behavior? Whether Facebook, Instagram, shopping, eating, drinking, smoking pot. What is it I'm afraid to feel? And lastly, to connect with an exiled part, just bring up a time in your life where you felt very alone. One of those times where we don't feel we matter in the mind of others. Connecting with the feeling that we almost dread, that feeling of being alone. And with this part, this self-state, just be as gentle and caring. Even if you only can touch into a little bit of it, 
just welcome whatever feelings are there. Being very tender and caring with the parts of ourselves we are least inclined to touch. If we can bear witness to these most hidden, painful parts, then the parts that are sometimes too dominant begin to relax, and we can choose amongst all the different self-states at our disposal. So, just return your awareness to the sound of the room, the feeling of the breath. And in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl. And just take your time, very slowly open your eyes enough to look at the ground in front of you and try to, as you bring sight back into your awareness, set an intention to not allow it to push awareness of your body to the side. 